This is Streaming Income, a podcast from Bearings, and I'm your host, Greg Campion. On this show, we intend to dig below the headlines to find out what's really going on in public and private asset markets around the world. From fixed income and equities to alternatives and real estate, we'll be speaking with Bearings experts from across the globe to get a glimpse into where they're seeing risks and opportunities today. If you like the show and want to hear more from us, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and search Streaming Income. Or visit us on Bearings.com. That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. On today's show, I spoke with Stuart Matheson and Brian High about distressed debt investing. Stuart leads the Global Special Situations Group here at Bearings. He's responsible for representing the firm's interests on restructurings and workouts and managing high-yield portfolios. Stuart is a member of Bearings' European High-Yield Investments Group and the European High-Yield Investment Committee. He's worked in the industry since 1999, and prior to joining the firm in 2002, he worked in the Business Recovery Services team at PricewaterhouseCoopers. Brian leads the U.S. Special Situations Group, where he is also responsible for restructurings, workouts, and managing high-yield portfolios. He's a member of Bearings U.S. High-Yield Investments Group and the U.S. High-Yield Investment Committee. He's worked in the industry since 2002, and prior to joining the firm in 2007, he served as a banker to middle market companies at a boutique investment bank and as a leveraged finance and restructuring advisory analyst for Bank of America Securities. In this conversation, I asked Stuart and Brian just how the macro environment is impacting their outlook. We also talked about what the knock-on effects are of the robust fundraising environment that we've seen in this space. And finally, what the growth in private credit means for the next distress cycle. The conversation, I think, is hopefully really quite timely in that investors are naturally turning their attention more and more to distress strategies at this point in the cycle. And with that, here is my conversation with Stuart Matheson and Brian High. All right, Stuart Matheson, Brian High, thank you guys so much for joining me today. Thanks for talking to us, Greg. Yeah, great to be here. Great, great. So I think it's an opportune time to uh, be speaking with you. We're talking about distressed debt today. And obviously, you know, we're, we're, we're quite a ways into this cycle. Um, there's a lot of focus on distress strategies right now. There's capital being raised in the space, et cetera. But Stuart, I was hoping you can start us off and, and just kind of set the stage for us. Tell us kind of what's going on in terms of issuer behavior in the high yield space, the default picture, all that kind of stuff. Just help us understand the, the kind of landscape as you see it. I think we are clearly late to cycle uh, in terms of the, the high yield credit markets. We've been talking about that now for around the last 12 months. Uh, from what we see, corporate earnings continue to hold up reasonably well. However, with the search for yield that's gone on across the markets, we're at a point where there are a number of aggressive structures that have been printed in the space, whether that's high leverage or deteriorating documentation. Uh, and that would be true across both loans and bonds. Compared to where we were in 2007, um, the, the markets were about $2.1 trillion dollars uh, and default rates at that stage were, were, were probably around one and a half percent pre-crisis. I think today the markets are much, much bigger. So I think we're in aggregate now about 3.5 trillion uh, and trading default rates are at a similar point uh, around one and a half percent in terms of defaults. When I look at what's happened this year though, we've had a big rebound following the weakness in Q4. 
it's the triple C assets. It's the lower rated assets that have actually underperformed at the start of the year. And I think that's probably reflecting on how investors view uh, where we are overall. That said, uh, look, 1.5% may be a, a relatively low default rate. Um, I'm not sure when it will pick up, but even doubling the rate would add 50 billion into the distress market. So it doesn't take a lot uh, for there to be a reasonable amount of supply. Yeah, that's really interesting. That's great context. So Brian, as we think about distressed debt investing overall, it, it, can, it can sort of mean different things to different people. So what I'd like to do is just ask you to help define our terms here. So are we talking about loans? Are we talking about bonds? Are we talking about first lien, second lien? And then also, are we talking about control investments, non-control investments? Can you explain to me how you guys are approaching this space? Sure. So let's level set about how we think about special situations and distressed investing from a bearings perspective. First and foremost, we're focused on corporate credit. So North American, European Broadly syndicated loans, high-yield bonds, private credit, each one of those kind of creates the, the, the large funnel of deals that we're looking at when we're, when we're looking to deploy capital across our platform. That could mean a high-yielding investment, as we define it, which could be a situation where the price may be dislocated for some reason. There's a lot of uncertainty around the situation, and, and we can invest in that loan or bond clip a coupon along the way, but also buy it at a discount where we have some capital appreciation opportunity as well. Um, that could then uh, also morph into an enterprise value investing opportunity, but hopefully we're going in ahead of time thinking of it as an enterprise value investing opportunity, which basically means there is an event, we're buying into uh, the fulcrum security within that capital structure, uh, and we're, we're looking forward to that event to be able to drive an outcome through a restructuring process, which likely ends up with us forgiving some debt in exchange for a vast majority of the equity of the business. So Brian, give us some examples here of how this actually works in action. Sure. So if I give you an example of a high yielding opportunity or a non-control investment, there was a fairly large loan, an offshore driller, $2.8 billion loan within the broadly syndicated loan market where bearings already had a presence within the loan. Um, you know, obviously during the commodity crisis, all loans and bonds traded off significantly, so we had the opportunity to search for relative value within that space. One of the names that we thought was interesting was an offshore driller that had a number of, of attractive rigs, and an idiosyncratic technical within the market was that their parent company was likely going to file for bankruptcy. It was highly publicized that they were going to file for bankruptcy. It was a public company. And this subsidiary of that public company, which was also publicly traded as part of an MLP structure, had a loan that was trading all the way down into the 30s. We did a lot of due diligence around the customer contracts that they had, the rigs that were in place. At the end of the day, got comfortable with the value of those rigs and started a position in the 30s. We grew conviction over time, built up our entire position between the 30s and the 60s with the idea that there was a covenant in place that ultimately could get us to the table we never thought that we were the fulcrum security. We always thought that at the end of the day, we would negotiate a better collateral package, better pricing, better documentation when we reached that catalyst. That's exactly what we did. We became one of the top three holders within that loan as a platform, not just special situations, but the broader high yield platform. And then ultimately, the loan traded up into the high 80s, low 90s. We exited our position within special situations. At the end of the day, a great outcome. So that's an example of a non-control investment. On the control side, again, thinking about our strategy of going a little bit more down market to the middle market, this was a healthcare company we looked at in the new issue market as part of the high yield investment committee. We declined it. 
There was a, a loan and a bond within the capital structure, along with a significant equity check from the sponsor. There were some nuances within that market that ultimately caused them to lose significant volume and drive forward a secular change in the market uh, that we identified at the original underwrite. And so as a result, the capital structure was over-levered. However, within that business, there was a segment of the business that was very focused on technology. We thought it was very interesting. We were able to start buying into that loan as they were entering a bankruptcy process. We built a position again over time, building conviction and building our position alongside that. And at the end of the day, became the second largest shareholder over time. Ultimately, through the process, the board was turned over, management team was turned over, uh, and over a five-year investment horizon, uh, we were able to grow that technology business into a very large asset and sell it to a Fortune 500 company at north of a billion dollars of value for just the technology segment. We still own the services business today. So, Stuart, Brian just gave two really great examples, one on the high-yielding side and one on the enterprise value side of when things go right. And obviously, that's an outcome that we are trying to achieve. What about things that go wrong? Can you talk a little bit about when uh, an investment moves against you? And you know, I don't know if you want to give an example or not, but um, I'm curious how you and the team deal with that. Inevitably, when you invest in the distress and special situations arena, um, you won't get everything right. I think what's key, though, as a team is that you do your work. Um, you employ uh, a lot of diligence as before you invest, uh, both from uh, understanding the company and understanding the process. I think it's then critical to kind of re-underwrite your thesis on a regular basis. What we've tended to do over time, including the examples that Brian's mentioned, is that we tend to start small and we grow our conviction over time as we get more comfortable. So as a business evolves, as a thesis starts to play out, what we've seen time and time again is that we're able to deploy more capital, sometimes at a slightly higher price, but uh, at a point where we feel that the the risk-adjusted returns are getting even more attractive because the thesis is playing through. I think the same is true when something goes wrong. Um, we, we all do our best and sometimes uh, things don't work out. It's incumbent across the team, though, to come in, reassess, re-underwrite and start again. At any point, um, we compare our expectations for an asset with the market price of the asset. On occasions, uh, we have sold out of assets when things go wrong. And that's really done with the mindset of preserving capital and mitigating uh, downside risk. So um, as with all investments, um, it doesn't stop when you deploy capital. Actually, arguably, that's when it starts. And so it, it's key to test yourself, to test your thesis, and to react accordingly throughout the life cycle of any transaction. Can you just talk a little bit about how you actually are sourcing these opportunities and kind of how that process actually looks? I'm just curious, are you monitoring the high-yield universe to look for names that are being downgraded or that are experiencing some kind of stress, or is there another kind of process that you're following to identify potential investments? Being part of the the wider bearings high-yield business, um, it's a huge asset as we think about our addressable market. As a team, I think we cover... Uh, in excess of 1,500 names on a proprietary basis. That means we have internal research uh, and we have historic trading. We've probably had experience of those businesses over several years. We have current models uh, and we probably have a call into management on on a number of those. So 
absolutely. Uh, being integrated into that kind of information platform is a huge advantage where you think about how you might monitor and track opportunities and ultimately source opportunities to put into a portfolio. So it goes back to the point, if you can start with a really wide funnel and narrow it down, then you should have a good pool to select from and be able to make some good choices. And the only thing I would add is if you think about the size of our high-yield platform globally at north of $65 billion of assets under management, alongside our private credit platform of you know $20 billion of assets under advisement, and our structured credit platform, you're talking about north of over $90 billion of, of AUM uh, with research teams between those three teams of 160 investment professionals. So I think uh, in order to leverage the platform, it makes it a whole lot easier for Stuart and myself and our teams to dig in quickly and get up to speed faster than the average. So, so guys, switching gears for a minute here, if we look at the overall backdrop for distress strategies, it seems like there's been a good bit of interest in the space from investors, which is probably no surprise given the maturity of this cycle. I was looking at some data yesterday just uh, from private debt investor around fundraising that's happened in the space over the last five years. According to their numbers, every year over the last five years, between 20 and 40 billion has been raised for distress strategies. In fact, they saw a big spike above that in 2017. I think it was 66 billion. So it seems like there's been a good amount of interest, a good amount of fundraising in the space. I'm curious, as you look at opportunities, Stuart, are you worried about it being hard to put capital to work given the amount of funds that have been raised um, in the space and also given the sort of continued low default rate that you mentioned earlier? I definitely think there are going to be some challenges. Um, You're right to say that there's been a lot of capital raised in the space, and, and I think that's a function of the fact that investors are now starting to position themselves for being late cycle. And of course, you need to do that before it happens, because once once you're in that late cycle, it's very difficult to then deploy capital into the space if you haven't already done so. So there's an element of preparing uh, for, uh, for high default rates. The second factor, of course, is default rates may be delayed this time. Um, the, the covenant-like nature of a number of loans now means that I think default rates are, are being pushed further and further back. So whereas uh, in the previous cycle, it may have been a covenant issue that led to a, a company to engage with its creditors, it's very likely today to be a cash flow issue uh, and a need for liquidity. And of course, that just may delay restructurings in that sense uh, and push things uh, further into the future. When you add it all up, I think there is a concern that for those who are raising really big funds, deployment may be an issue. What we've tried to do is stay flexible. And the reason we do that is because at any point, uh, we feel there are things for us to look at. And if default rates are higher, inevitably we'll probably do more control style investment. And if default rates are lower, we may just see more high-yielding opportunities where we can we can deploy capital uh, and seek a running yield uh, and a pull to bar. Um, but but certainly that flexibility, I think, is is really important. It's allowed us to deploy, um, on average, around eighty percent of the money we raise within within about two years. So being able to differentiate yourself uh, and and I think not be too big uh, would will certainly be an advantage uh, at this point in the cycle and certainly maybe the early point. Uh, before default rates meaningfully pick up. As you see more capital come into the space, does that change the dynamics of what looks interesting and what doesn't look interesting? So I'm curious, for instance, do you see some of the larger size uh, investments out there in the market 
did those become less attractive because you've got more big funds chasing? I would absolutely say that 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 has influenced where we find relative value within the space. Uh, So if I think about some of the larger flow names that have found stress or distress, there tends to be somewhat of a herd mentality because of the sheer size of the deal, you can obviously deploy more capital into that situation. So if I have a $10 billion fund and I need to put hundreds of millions of dollars of work for it to be meaningful within that fund, I'm going to be looking at the larger deals. Where we find value is where we can differentiate ourselves within a process. And we want to be at the table. We want to be driving an outcome. So, Stuart, one thing that's changed this cycle versus the last cycle is the growth that we've seen in the private credit space. We've obviously seen a lot of fundraising there. We've obviously seen a lot of new entrants come into that market Some skeptics in the market think that that could be an area where you could see potential stress and distress in the years ahead. Do you see it as a potential source of opportunity for your distressed strategy? So if we're thinking about private credit and direct lending, then then I agree. Um, It absolutely should be an opportunity, albeit one that's potentially difficult to access, given the names are not going to be that well-known or understood. Uh, Like all markets which have seen explosive growth, defaults will naturally just start to increase as the market matures. Uh, So even if they start as being relatively low, just matching the kind of 1% to 2% default rate in the developed and syndicated markets is going to create defaults and those opportunities should be interesting. The same arguably could be true of the European high-yield bond market. Um, That's a market that's seen fivefold growth uh, since 2009. And, and as another factor, I think when you think about the people who invest in those markets, there's a huge amount of experience uh, that goes along with restructuring that, that may or may not exist uh, in those markets. If I go back to 2008 and 2009, the loan market had to learn very, very quickly how to restructure businesses. Um, teams of people who hadn't been through Corporate debt restructurings became experts on UK jurisdiction, continental jurisdictions, schemes of arrangement, administrations, and so on. Uh, recently, I've been working on a transaction in the European high-yield bond market. Um, it was a secured bond. The outcome has been terrific for the secured bondholders. But at the start of that process, it was like going back to 2008. Um, the first few meetings were actually dealt with by lawyers having to talk investors through UK schemes of arrangement. Um, and I think that's maybe just indicative of that level of experience uh, not being there. When we think about mid-market companies, um, I'd maybe just suppose that, that these are businesses, that even if they're good businesses with, with great market positions, they're also the kind of size of business where there are going to just be fewer options, fewer levers, which they can pull when they hit a bump in the road. So again, I think that will really help drive the opportunity. Absolutely, there's an opportunity there because if you think about the amount of capital that's been raised and the number of shops that have popped up independently along the way, rightfully so, they're investing their P&L in originators to put that money to work. They're drawdown structures. They need to find opportunities. And so the best way for them to you know, earn their fee is to find deals to invest in. What isn't helpful for them is adding cost that is a workout professional who is not an originator. So what we've seen across the space is either originators try to be workout people, and clearly they have sponsor relationships and conflicts along the way, or try to outsource the workout function at a reasonable cost, which ultimately may work. But um, from our perspective, having the in-house expertise is going to be the most helpful for a broader platform. And at Bearings, 
We're more and more integrated into that private credit platform every day. We think the benefit is mutual. We can bring expertise to those situations to help them in troubled credit opportunities. Uh, and then we, we also have a window into that market. As Stuart mentioned, accessing that deal flow is going to be a challenge. I think there'll be plenty of opportunity, but, but getting in front of those and seeing them, um, it will be more difficult than the broadly syndicated market where you have a screen that has a price for every asset every day, every hour. Uh, so these assets aren't priced on a daily basis. They're priced internally. Perhaps you can see them on a publicly traded BDC or something like that. But um, if it's an all-private deal that doesn't have a public lender, chances are you're never even going to know that deal exists unless you have a proprietary window into that market. And so we're, we're excited about uh, leveraging the overall platform when and if that, that opportunity presents itself. Yeah, I think it'll be a really interesting space to watch um, in the years ahead just because so much capital has flown into it. So many new entrants are in the space. And then kind of as Stuart was saying, you know, whether it's private credit or even some other markets that have developed significantly over the last 10 years, like European high yield, we kind of sit here and forget that, hey, you could be 10 years into your career analyzing private credit or European high-yield bonds and not have gone through a cycle. So um, that education process, I think, is a really good point to bring up, Stuart. Maybe just one more point to add. Look, these are markets where generally we've seen growth, so capital flowing in, um, and that's allowed businesses to refinance. Uh, when you think about markets like private credit, if, if that market ceases to grow or, or possibly even starts to shrink at some point, um, then it'll be interesting to see what happens when uh, the funds start to mature and the assets need to be refinanced and what options will be there uh, for those companies. That's not necessarily the same, by the way, as as things looking uh, distressed, uh, but they may be refinancing into a market where um, conditions are just a little bit less helpful than they were uh, a few years ago. So, guys, we've covered a good bit of ground here. Any final takeaways from your perspective? Over the last decade, I think we've built a platform that allows us to effectively deploy capital into the space. Um, core to it all is a really strong underwrite process. Um, it's an information advantage that we have as being part of bearings. Um, as a final point, I think flexibility, at least from our perspective, is key. Being able to look at all sorts of different situations, whether they're in the US, whether they're in Europe, whether they're big or small, whether they're control or non-control situations, I think is really important for different parts in the cycle, but also because you never know where the best relative returns are going to be. Uh, so having that flexibility to deploy across all of those different things, um, I think, is key to to being successful. Yeah, that's that's a great point, Stuart, and and that's great context. And you know, as I think the distress space is very much in the spotlight today uh, for investors, given where we are in the cycle. I expect that will only continue. So uh, I think it's been really helpful, and uh, I've certainly learned a lot from. Uh, getting your perspectives on where we are in this uh, space today and, and what to expect going forward. So thanks again, Brian and Stuart. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to hear more from the team here at Bearings, please go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify and search Streaming Income or find us on the web at bearings.com. That's B-A-R-I-N-G-S.com. Thanks again. All right, Stuart Matheson, Brian High. Thank you guys so much for joining me today. Great to be uh, here. Thanks for that. <laughs> so we both talked over each other. Should we do that again? Yeah, that's, yeah, okay. So I'll, I'll wait for you, Stuart. Okay, sounds good. <clears throat> All right, here we go. Stuart.
Stuart, you're you're. A, I can already tell you're going to be a natural at this. All right. 